That's why I believe in you because that is the greatest purpose. It's to love. Honest. It's to, it sounds corny. Whatever you want to say, I don't care. I love people because there is freedom and power in loving people. Hello, all you positive heads out there. Thanks for tuning your beautiful brainwaves into another episode of the Positive Head Podcast, where we have the crazy belief that creating success and happiness is a daily conscious effort, which is why we provide you with a fresh serving of soul food for thought five days a week. I'm your host, Brandon Beecham, and each and every Wednesday, you can tune in to hear me interview a different consciousness changemaker that is out there working tirelessly to help catalyze change and expand awareness all across Spaceship Earth. On the other four weekdays, you can tune in to myself and my co-host, Dalian, giving interpretations of our favorite thought-provoking quotes, sharing a bit of inspiring or mysterious news, taking questions from the audience, and digging into any other mind-expansive topics that will help keep your soul fed by tuning you in to positive vibrations on a regular basis. All right, all you positive heads, today we have something very special in store for you all. I'm thrilled to announce that in collaboration with our friends from one of my all-time favorite transformational festivals, Lucidity, between now and April, we'll be bringing you a special edition podcast each and every week showcasing a different workshop from one of the past Lucidity Festival gatherings. We're doing this in support in anticipation of the fifth chapter in the epic journey that is Lucidity Festival called Crossroads which is coming up April 8th through 10th, 2016 in Santa Ynez, which is located right next to Santa Barbara, California, at the beautiful Live Oak Campground. Also, as if the magic that is Lucidity Festival wasn't already enough, this year the Lucidity team is stepping up their game and doing something extra special by launching their very first ever Lucid University Course Week. The Lucid University Course Week will provide a variety of three-day intensive trainings on-site at Live Oak Campground April 4th through 6th, with the classes taking place while Lucidity Festival itself is being set up and built. These dynamic courses are designed to offer immersive educational experiences resulting in certifications of completion for students interested in five general areas of study to choose from. You've got spirit works, community works, Earthworks, Creative Works, and Body Works. They have a really strong curriculum with excellent instructors where you can learn everything from Reiki to lucid dreaming to permaculture uh, design and more. The hardest part for me is honestly just choosing which class and certification I would like to pursue because they all sound so juicy. Bottom line, this truly is a rare opportunity to learn from experts in a unique and exciting environment that will inevitably be alive with the buzz and anticipation of the imminent festivities. As far as cost goes, well, that varies depending on how much lucidity goodness you want to sign up for. But whatever you do decide, you'll want to move quick because Lucidity Festival always sells out. And I imagine the available Lucidity University seats are going fast too. So head over to lucidityfestival.com to check out all the options. And be sure to use the code POSITIVEHEAD, all one word, to get a $10 discount off any and all tickets. All right, without further ado, for this week's Lucidity Workshop episode, we have Zach Leary, who is the son of famed psychologist Timothy Leary and is also known as Bhakta Yogi Ramana. 
In this talk, he tells anecdotes and personal stories of transcendence and meaning and shares his insights on how to walk the path of the heart in today's increasingly complex and desensitized world. Hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, lovers and learners, all residents of Lucid City, students of Lucid University, welcome back. Class is now in session. On stage right now, we have Zach Leary with his workshop entitled The Science of God, How to Open One's Heart While Analyzing Consciousness. Friends, Mr. Zach Leary. Hello, friends. Can everybody hear me okay? All right, good, good, good. Thank you all for for coming. It's good to see everybody, friends and family here at the Lucidity Festival. Now, in a different context, if we weren't at a festival to where we could, where we were kind of hearing, you know, electronic music kind of pumping in the background and we weren't kind of uh, caught up in what was going on in the day and kind of find a quiet space to ask us all to uh, find a minute to be quiet, kind of go inside, kind of be internal for a second and just reflect on whatever it is you want to reflect on. I wouldn't really call it a formal meditation, but uh, maybe what they say in one of these traditions about finding sankalpa, which means your intention, setting your intention. And we can still do it because this is actually a really interesting exercise. Uh, it's a really interesting exercise to do meditation or to do a moment or a minute of quiet introspection when there's a lot of noise around. You know, meditation is often so synonymous with peace and quiet, and, and uh, which is good. It's helpful, of course, because it helps to get the synapses quiet helps the neurochemistry to quiet down a little bit. But it's a really interesting exercise to go ahead and find a minute where all of this is happening around us and recognize the beauty in all of it. There's some amazing music being created. There are people dancing. There are people loving. There are new friends meeting. There are people ingesting various medicines. There are people eating food. People engaging in conscious community. So let's just take, you know, 30 seconds to 60 seconds to just kind of set your sankalpa, set your intention, um, and we'll take it from there. So it's nice to do these things when we're at gatherings like this because we all have our intentions of what it is we're doing at places like this. Some of us are here just to, you know, have a good time, to party, to meet other people, some of us are here for other deeper reasons. Um, what was interesting was, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I haven't been to this festival before, it was my first time here, but I've known about it since it started, and uh, I was kind of taking the name for granted, like the Lucidity Festival. Then I decided to look at the word lucid, and I just, by definition, it is a uh, Lucid means having, showing, or characterized by an ability to think clearly and rationally. An ability to think clearly and rationally. And that's really far out, because uh, I rarely think clearly and rationally. Um, and I don't necessarily strive to think rationally. 
I strive to think clearly, so maybe I make better decisions, and I can operate in this construct that we call life. Um, so, you know, for the next, you know, 50 to 60 minutes, we're going to talk about a variety of things. Um, maybe we'll talk a little bit about thinking clearly or rationally, or thinking irrationally, completely unclearly, talk about the mistakes that we make in life. We'll talk a little bit about spirituality, we'll talk a little bit about psychedelics, we'll talk a lot of bit about technology and its application in our world today. We'll talk about uh, music, we'll talk about politics, we'll talk about community, we'll talk about loving, compassion, and uh, I'll share with you some of my practice and the things that, uh, that kind of inspire me and where, you know, my path a little bit. And, um, yeah, we'll kind of just reflect on that. Uh, you know, these things are, are, whenever I get asked to talk, um, you know, sometimes I, I'm not a TED speaker, you know, for all of you who know about TED Talks, they're all word dialed in word for word, and the TED committee makes sure you're following your script word for word, and it's more like a, a, a performance. Um, and that serves TED very, very well, obviously. Those are incredibly powerful talks. I'm not a TED speaker at all. I just, I'm, I'm speaking stream of consciousness. I have some notes here. I have some ideas of where we want to go. So, But they ask for topics. You know, they ask for what it is we're, we're going to talk about. And the closest thing I could think of was the science, the science of God. And that is a pretty ambiguous title. Uh, I, I admit that. Uh, but what that, pretty mean, what that means is whatever you imagine God to be, whatever God is in your life, um, let's just say for conversation's sake, it is opening up your heart and following the path of the heart. And the science part of it is how we exist in today's very complicated world. We live in a very complicated world that is becoming increasingly more desensitized. At the same time, it's becoming increasingly more connected. You know, we're living the first time in humanity where you know all seven billion inhabitants basically have access to the same stream of information. It's a very egalitarian system of how information is accessed, and those are beautiful things. Um, but what I wanted to I want to open with a story. It's not my story. It's a story. Um, everybody familiar with Ram Dass? Everybody knows who Ram Dass is, right? Um, if you don't, it's, it's, it's okay. Um, but Ram Dass, this is, this is a great story of, uh, that he likes to tell of something that happened to him in, in the 70s. And when Ram Dass was in his speaking prime in the, in the 70s and 80s, um, especially in the 70s, you know, you would go to a Ram Dass talk, and there would be a lot of people in white robes, and they would really be kind of in the, in the fashion of the day, and long hair and beards, and they were really into the spiritual materialism and identifying as a spiritual person. And it looked like a bunch of people would go see a Ram Dass talk, right? Um, he was doing a talk one time in New York City, and, and you know, there was Kirtan playing in the back, and kind of doing ecstatic dance in the back and in the very front row was this woman in, uh, who looked like she kind of came from the upper east side we're judging books by its cover here by the way this is part of the story there's a woman who looked like she came from the upper east side and she was dressed in this perfectly 
um, outfitted and manicured uh, black Chanel, Chanel suit. She had pumps on, she had a little hand clutch purse, and she had a little hat with a little veil come over her eyes. And needless to say, she looked very out of place at a wrong dog talk, at a wrong dog talk in 1974. She was sitting in the front row. Ramdas was talking about going to meet his guru named Karoli Baba in India and the mysticism that transpired after that and how he opened his heart and he began to see these maps of consciousness. This woman is in the front row nodding to everything everything he's saying. Oh wow, that's very interesting. Then he noticed her and he noticed, God, who is this woman? How does she know about these things? How is she identifying with all of these things that I'm saying? Then he decided to take it a little bit more out there started getting into psychedelics. Oh, back in 1966, I took LSD for three weeks, every day for three weeks in the gatehouse at Millbrook. And we didn't miss one day where we increased our dosage to 500 mics and 700 mics and 1,000 mics. And the mysticism that transpired after that, this woman was just nodding and gently going, oh, it's very interesting. It's fascinating. Afterwards, the talk was over. This woman came up to Ramdas and said, Oh, I found your talk very, very interesting, Mr. Ramdas. I related with everything that you said. And he went, Well, how, how do you know about all this? How could you relate with everything I said? And she replied, I crochet. <laughs> so, the game is much bigger than you think it is. Um, and when we come to gatherings like this, um, communities like this, I think it's a really important thing to remember. Um, you know, I this is not a this is an observation of myself, but I belong to a lot of communities. Uh, I like to call cults now that uh, that have a certain dress, and we really identify with each other. I can look across the room and go, "Hey, brother, I know you're like you're a like-minded soul." You know? very interesting and those things are very necessary I think to help us identify the world to go to places to where we feel safe and to where we feel understood and to where we feel loved and connected with everybody around us and that's great and that's why we, we come to places like this because this is our tribe right we're, we're here together but it's very interesting to, to remember that story the crochet story um, because you don't know you can't take on anybody else's trip, you know? Everybody is engaged in a trip. I mean, not everybody, you know, obviously we have some discord in the world today, but people are engaged on a trip in a, in a route of exploration, in a route of transcendence that you may not be able to identify right away, and there are many different methods. So that is really the moral of the story, is don't get attached to the method. You know, mainly, most of my activities, you know, most of my interests lie within Eastern modalities, um, kind of like bhakti yoga, Hindu kind of stuff, and some Buddhist, some Buddhist kind of stuff, and, you know, and meditation, bhakti yoga, yoga, asana, and kirtan, and even psychedelics, and things like that. Um, but what's really interesting about all of those practices is we get very attached to the method that, you know, the method. 
it's the method that is going to give me moksha, that's going to give me liberation. It's the kirtan, it's the repetitive, the repetition of the holy names. It's psychedelics. If I do acid enough, eventually I'm going to understand how the universe works. If I listen to enough Terrence McKenna tapes and take enough heroic doses, I'm going to understand how the universe works. If I go to a Burning Man enough times, I'm going to figure out how the universe fucking works. And these are all important aids, but the methods can't be effective until you absolutely kind of come confrontational with within the method within the method yourself and see that all methods are a trap. You can't get attached to the method because the second you do, you just you're born in a cycle of attachment. And all of these things are really important aids to help us kind of continue on the path, to help us expose our weaknesses and our darkness and, and, and our light as well. But they're just tools, you know, and the personal application of these tools is um, is really where it's at. And the other thing about the, the crochet story is that, you know, I think it, it's more even appropriate today talking about separation and extreme polarization, you know, and I think separation is a really cool one because any discord that we feel in life, any discord that we feel in society, um, or any discord that we feel within our ego all arises out of separation. You know, separation from others and the illusion of separateness. And we do all of these things that kind of create, you know, especially in society, I don't mean us here at Lucidity Festival, but we do these things that create an illusion of separateness. You know, we're attached to political parties. You know, in these days, the whole conversation around nation states and what's going on in the Middle East and Israel really about the illusion of separateness and nation states are these these fierce sort of walls that we put up to go no i i identify with that nation and they're right the other nation must be wrong and we have all of these walls to build us up and build us up and build us up and create this illusion of separateness which takes away our ability to feel the oneness with each other and what that's doing today, because in today's you know hyper-polarized world of, of, of media, um, you know the polarization that we're experiencing is is, uh, is 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 very very difficult, and it becomes very hard for us. It takes extra work for us to understand the self, the true self. Um, you know, Tanah Han said, "True self is not is the non-self. The awareness that the self is made only of non-self elements." There's no separation between self and other, and everything is interconnected. Once you are aware that you are no longer caught in the idea that you are a separate entity. So, you know, that that's a really good seed for practice into realizing that you are not a separate entity. Um, but what I thought was kind of an interesting thing to talk about today is kind of going beyond the entity thing and talking more about consciousness. Uh, you know, I think the physical manifestations of our incarnation, we take shape into this body. Here we are in this vessel. Um, it's really important to honor our physical incarnation and our body how it is, you know, we're kind of existing on this on this rock, hurling around space, oh my god, we have this vessel, 
But what is this vessel allowing us to do? This vessel is that it's giving us consciousness. And the mystery of where consciousness comes from is a really interesting topic to me. And it's, it's really, I've been wrestling with this idea for a while and started the Seed Vivid book kind of based on this idea. Um, you know, not so much what is God, you know, I, I don't want to get into that whole trip, but what is consciousness? What is this, this, this gigantic lens in which we get to view the world, you know, and how did something like the Big Bang all of a sudden replicate itself and go outwards and outwards and outwards and turn into something like the Lucidity Festival? How did two atoms hurling in space, kind of creating a giant explosion, turn into this gathering of these minds, these bodies, and this music, and this art here? You know, so what, what is consciousness? It's, it's a really, um, it's a really meaty topic. Um, you know, the, in the dictionary, it says the state of being awake and aware of one's surroundings or the aware of perception of something by a person, the fact of awareness by the mind of itself and the world. Yeah, so I like the last one, the fact of awareness by the mind of itself and the world. So as far as we know, as far as we can record or know yet, we're the only species that is aware that we're aware. So, <laughs> We have this amazing gift of self-referential awareness to where we can look at the world around us and go, wow, this is all happening. This is all happening, and we can reflect on that. And the one thing that we all have in common, every single person on this planet has in common, is that something is happening. I think we all agree on that. You know, it doesn't matter if, if you're Barack Obama, Ted Cruz, Ram Dass, Zach, or whoever else is in this room. We all agree that something, something the fuck is going on, you know? And, you know, this thing called life, this, 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 this existence that we get to participate in is, uh, is a really interesting dance to do in the universe. And, you know, I think, in 2015, in the 21st century, being born into the Western world is a really, it, it's a, eventually it becomes a beautiful experience, and I don't want it to sound negative, but I think everybody has dealt a hand at the beginning that is, uh, I find it to be pretty frustrating and pretty limiting. Like, if you're born into the West today, you're born into a whole construct of society that you pretty much have to participate in. It's really hard to live off of the grid today. I mean, you can't just wander the world, wander the earth, and wander the forest, making berries and building your house wherever you want to build your house. Everything is owned by someone. You have to have a job. You have to pay taxes. You have to drive a car. You have to put gas in your car. You have to buy a ticket to come to the Lucidity Festival. There's all of these constructs that we have to participate in. And, you know, within that is, comes a lot of structure, you know, it does, there, there's a lot of structure within that. And, you know, finding the dance and the balance within that, finding your individuality within that, finding your uniqueness within that, is really what we're all doing here, finding a way to coexist in this society and on this planet without, you know, 
basically while staying in our lanes and if we have to cross lanes and intersect with other people and other paths and other people within these constructs that we can do it harmoniously and you know it's easy to see that uh, that in a lot of cases we're not doing it so harmoniously so you know how do we do this how do we open up our hearts how do we expand our consciousness while also you know uh, loving each other, being more compassionate, you know, how do we do all of these things while all of this is kind of going on around us, you know. Um, you know, I, I like to think that, um, you know, consciousness, there's kind of this, I've always gotten this vision on psychedelics, which are a really, you know, powerful tool to kind of view consciousness in, but that there is kind of a pervading reality a pervading consciousness, which is above. You know bumper cars, everybody's been on bumper cars, right? Uh, maybe when you were a kid, or if kids still do that today, I don't know. But, um, you know, you drive around the bumper car, right? And your car has this big steel pole in the back, and it's connected to this gate of electricity above you, you know? And you're, but you have free will within the bumper car track. You know, you can steer, you can bump, you can go fast, you can go slow, you can go backwards. And I view consciousness as a very similar exercise as that. There is this pervading wall of electricity, of information flowing over us magically, beautifully. And all of these things are happening. The world is spinning, the, the, the water is raining, and the sun is shining. All of these things are happening. We're building things, we're destroying things, we're loving each other, we're killing each other. All of these things are kind of happening on this global collective consciousness. But each one of us has our own unique tentacle into it and our own way of viewing it and experiencing it. And we're given the choice of free will. You know, we can we can drive the car straight, we can bump into each other, or whatever it is. Um, you know, and there are many, you know, with all mysticism, mystic practices, including everything from yoga and uh, meditation, Hinduism, Buddhism, and then psychedelics in the West, um, and technology. You know, I consider technology to be a window into consciousness, and we'll talk about that in a second. But with all of these things that, are, that, that have happened, they're all basically different attempts to give maps of the world and of maps of the con of consciousness and maps of how to basically go ahead and exist on this planet um, and to be you know ultimately for some people some people have a harder time than others and we're just trying to get by and be comfortable in our own skin some people are kind of further along the path and they're trying to you know their map for human consciousness is a little bit more um, you know maybe it's a little bit more evolved for them or, or, or whatever it is but um, you know they're essentially just maps and you know we live in a time right now where you know starting about 2,000 years ago there was a specific map for consciousness that was kind of created in some Judeo-Christian uh, Judeo-Christian modalities to where this map for consciousness and this map for what is right or wrong, this map that kind of basically told us where it is we came from, was kind of just forced out into the Western world and kind of accepted as a doctor, right? Um, you know, you go, and many of us, you know, don't agree with that map, by the way, obviously. You know, some of us do, and that's fine. But then you go to the East and 
you know, the maps, like, you know, with traditional Judeo-Christian modalities, the maps for consciousness are pretty black and white. You know, it's pretty much like, you know, this happened on this date, and this happened this many years ago, and these are the rules of, you know, these are the rules, these really big, heavy rules. And, you know, a lot of that just kind of came out of fear, because, you know, a variety of reasons. But you go to the East, and, you know, you look at um, Buddhist philosophies or, or Hindu philosophies, and you'll find that these maps are far more ambiguous and far more sensitive and far more subtle and really explore the differences between, you know, consciousness as you see it within sentient beings and then the subtle body as well. Um, so, you know, like in, in Buddhist, um, Buddhist philosophy, they talk a lot about um, what's called the primary feeling. So Buddhist psychology helps us distinguish two critical aspects of thinking. The first and most essential quality is called the primary feeling. According to this perspective, every moment of our sense experience has a feeling tone. Like balance and chemistry, each sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, or thought will have either a pleasant, painful, or neutral quality. And then modern, modern neuroscience confirms that everything that registers in the brain is assigned some negative or positive balance. Happy or sad, pain, pleasure, whatever. The primary feeling tone comes first. Then born out of this simple feeling tone, there arises a whole array of secondary well, feelings, I, all the emotions we are familiar with, from joy and anger to fear and delight. I would just skip so, you know, these are very, you know, that's a, a kind of a traditional Buddhist philosophy take, take on that. And, um, you know, in the Hindu tradition, uh, and kind of the, the, there are many Hindu traditions, by the way, but kind of just the, the over arching global understanding of the Hindu tradition and the Bhakti Yoga tradition. You know, consciousness and God is so absolutely infinite and so hard to understand and so beyond anything that we're even capable of understanding that it cannot be defined. But it's absolutely impossible to define. So in the non-dualist approach of that, where non-dualist means no separation and the application of oneness, the application of that understanding is kind of brought down to forms that can help us kind of go through this, like Shiva or Shakti. You know, Shiva is the absolute consciousness which cannot be understood. It is so great, it is so powerful, it's so loving, it is so destructive, it is so everything. But then Shakti is kind of this energy that we can take back down and we can work with that. You know? And you know, in my practice, you know, this is a, a very interesting topic, and I know at festivals, like, you know, I've experienced this at Burning Man and, and things like that. Um, the whole guru trip is kind of, especially in America, is really frowned upon. Uh, and probably for good reason, you know, I think we all understand that. Maybe some of us have some negative associations with, with the guru trip and, and, and what that it is that means and, and worshiping, you know, idol deities and reluctant deities. Like that, you know? And I think uh, a lot of you know modern application of Judeo-Christian religions have really kind of put that out there for us. That, that you know, and of course a lot of unsavory gurus have really ruined it for the good ones, you know. Uh, but 
you know, I think it's a really interesting game and dance to play with with these things because, you know, the reason I explore these maps of consciousness and um, specifically like the guru tradition or, you know, kind of using avatars, whether you believe they're real or not, really doesn't matter at all. If you think Krishna was a blue guy dancing around playing his flute, I don't care if it's real or not, it doesn't make a difference to me. But the reason that I use these applications as a map of consciousness is because my thinking and my critical thinking and my irrationality and ultimately my impurities are such that, you know, I need a little bit of help. You know, using avatars or realized beings or people who are kind of can tap into just a little bit more of that that, con that electricity field I was talking about, like the bumper cars, you know, who can tap into just a little bit more, you know, are basically just portals to that love field, you know, and, and, and that's why those practices are really interesting and really powerful, and that's why AIDS, you know, when we get to sacred medicines like psychedelics, that's why these AIDS are extremely powerful, because, you know, on the most scientific, basic, you know, kind of uh, on a neuroscientific level, when we, get, much like dogs or cats or any other animals kind of around us, you know, we can only see frequencies that our bodies are tuned to see. You know, we can only see a spectrum of light and hear a spectrum of sound that the human condition is wired to do. What psychedelics do, what meditation does, or what bhakti yoga does, is it kind of increases your range a little bit. Even if it's just a smidgen, it causes it, it gives you the ability to have a back door and a sideways door and an upside down door and a topways door is to basically look at these at these frequencies and these other planes of consciousness around us in new and expressive ways that you couldn't see before. And you know, over the course of the last uh, I mean, we could say the last couple thousand years, but let's really say the last hundred years, you know, we really have a tremendous war on consciousness that's going on in, in the West, uh, especially in America. Um, you know, and, you know, we've seen some progress lately with, uh, you know, cannabis legalization in some places and, and uh, you know, what the MAPS Society is doing with psychedelics and the treatment of MDMA with, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder with uh, with veterans, you know, things like that. Extremely cool things that are happening. And we have gatherings, obviously, like this. If you kind of walked into the Lucidity Festival, you'd be like, oh, there's no war on consciousness. Everybody's here, and it's awesome. The whole world is like this. But it's not the case. We really have a war on consciousness, you know, altering one's consciousness. For whatever reasons, are, I guess, governments or powers that be has taken away the right to alter one's consciousness however we want you know some ways are okay you can go to church you can drink alcohol you can meditation is legal and yoga is legal and those are really cool things and dancing and there are lots of cool modalities that don't have to do with with illegal things of course i'm not saying that but overall we have a war on consciousness there are many people out there who think that, like, you know, people who gather in places like this are a bunch of freaks that were the outcasts that were wrong, you know. And, you know, obviously, you know, we know that comes from, from a lack of fear. Uh, it comes from a lot of fear, rather, not a lack of fear, but 
modesty and a lot of, you know, we've always had this problem as a society is our ability, our lack of ability to basically co cohabitate and share different paths but kind of in the same room, you know, or I like to call it different rides at the same amusement park. You know, it's okay to go on different rides and stay in the same amusement park, you know. And over time, things have become a little bit less severe. Like, if you were a man who lived a thousand years ago, chances are, if you were a, an able-bodied man who lived a thousand years ago, you know how you'd probably die? It wasn't of disease. It was of violence. You'd probably die defending somebody or having to defend your food inside of your village or, or something like that. That's, pro that's how a healthy man a thousand years ago, that was the, the, the most common cause of death a thousand years ago. That's cool, it's not the case today. We've made a lot of progress, you know. Most of us don't kind of die at the hands of violence, you know. And after that was disease, you know, obviously. You know, if you lived to 40 years old a thousand years ago, you're considered to be an old man. Now we can live a really long time approaching an amazing singularity where things can get really interesting, really, really, really soon, um, around our ability to live a long time. But, you know, the war on consciousness is, is a really interesting paradigm that we're still figuring out how the dance is going to work out, you know. Um, you know, it's great we're seeing a lot of advancements and acceptance, I mean, like, you know, in 1969, I'd say no, let's go a little earlier, 1965, you know how many places there were to do practice yoga in America? Like asana yoga? Five. There were five yoga studios in America in 1965. You know, today there are, you know, oh, there's probably 50 of them in, in, in Santa Barbara alone, you know. So, you know, we are making a lot of progress in and, and we are figuring out how to basically let people dance in their own way, explore their own paths of consciousness without, you know, stepping on each other. You know. But still, you know, you'll see some backlash, and it's almost comedic at this point, you know. I don't know if you guys, I wish we had the clip to play, but Pat Robertson talking about, uh, about Buddhism uh, a couple weeks ago on his show, like, yeah, some woman uh, called into his show and said there were a bunch of Buddhists at my, at, at my work and they all are encouraging me to meditate, to explore uh, the practice of meditation, how to open my heart. And he, and he basically told her, oh my God, you have to quit your job right away. These people are going to infect you with the devil. You know, and that's true. That happened, you know. And so, I mean, you know, I don't think Pat Robertson is really mainstream media anymore, but whatever, he still gets it. He has enough viewers, he gets enough attention to where these things are still out there, you know. Or we're still, you know, we see, especially in the gay and lesbian community, you know, we see a complete, like, attack on those sensibilities and a complete, like, we're repeating all the same mistakes over and over and over and over again about attacking our gay brothers and sisters, like, their way of lifestyle, their consciousness is just, it's inhuman. They're the devil, you know, and um, you know we're fighting that war right now. That seems to be the war that we're fighting, um, which is a really interesting war. You know? So we live in an illusion and the appearance of things. There's a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing and being nothing. You are everything. That is all. Color Rinpoche said that. So kind of the being and nothingness philosophy.
And, you know, as it relates to consciousness, you know, I, one of my favorite visions when I'm in meditation kind of the classic existential vision that I think a lot of us have had, either in meditation or in psychedelics or whatever, just kind of taking a hike. When I fall into meditation, quite often I get this thought of um, the very the physical nature of exactly what I'm doing. I'm sitting on a pillow in a room, um, sometimes outside, but mostly in a room. I'm sitting on this pillow, um, trying to quiet my mind, open my heart and kind of get down to the singularity within my own mind and I'm just this guy floating on a rock and I take this macro view that goes up and up and up and I can see myself from a bird's eye view above it and I just see there's this little body sitting on this mat trying to understand what the hell is going on here and I go up and up and up and I'm into outer space and then I just disappear and that is not to say like you know, I don't like the idea there are some, especially in the Eastern, some Eastern traditions, and the tradition even that I practice, that, um, that we are nothing, we're insignificant. You know, we're just little specks of God's love and God's existence. And I don't necessarily uh, find that to be true. I think, you know, we are incredibly powerful, and one person has the incredible ability to, to, to change the way we live. Martin Luther King, Zorg, or Albert Einstein or Gandhi, whoever it is, now and then there's a person who can come along and absolutely shake our very foundation. So I don't like to think of us as insignificant. I think that's kind of a, a slippery slope and kind of creates a very what the fuck attitude. Oh, what does it matter anyway? I'm just one person. I think it's really important to understand our uniqueness and understand the power that each one of us has. And these days with the application of technology, you know, everybody has a megaphone these days, you know. Everybody has the ability to tweet something that can reach hundreds or thousands of people, or, or, or Facebook a video that can reach hundreds or thousands of people. And these are very important ideas. You know? So, I talked a little bit about uh, the Eastern stuff and the guru system and the deities, and you know, and, and you know, it doesn't matter if, if that's your path or not. I really, I don't really don't think that's an essential essential thing. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about psychedelics. Um, but I think technology is kind of a good place to kind of jump into with consciousness um, as it relates to consciousness and it's a really the perfect blend of science, spirituality, science and spirituality kind of equals technology, you know. And, you know, primarily for the last 400 years since America was founded, there are basically two venues at which we are creating our experience in, and that is one of technology and spirituality. And I use both of those words loosely. With technology, that can be everything from the Industrial Revolution to the Agricultural Revolution to what we're seeing now with you know social media and smartphones. Just everything, the mother of invention. And spirituality, you know, large roots in this country, you know, the, the far right will try to tell you different, but a lot of its core reason, uh, besides the political and the taxation reasons, why America was found a foothold was because it was a rejection of the Church of England that the separation of church and state, that the church did not have the right to basically rule government and vice versa. So, you know, we find ourselves growing in these in these different venues, you know. We still see it today, you know, religion and, and, and 
and where we, we see it on the news all the time talking about extremism and uh, you know whether it's extreme uh, you know, the extreme Islamist issue that we're having or you know, the extreme right-wing Christian issue that we're having or whatever it is or you even see it on the other side is the extreme atheist point of view like I don't know if you guys watch Bill Maher but, but you see this all the time on the Bill Maher show and, and, and uh, it's a fascinating exploration that you, if like saying that you love God is a dirty word, that you have to reject the whole thing and you have to be like, you know, you have to be completely scientific and, and, and go that route. Um, and technology kind of sits in the middle of all of this, you know. Um, and, you know, the science of technology and how it's affecting and mutating our human condition is a really, really fascinating paradigm. Um, you know, I remember in 1995 when Amazon.com launched, and I was sitting in my dad's office, and uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, he, he definitely saw what was coming. And could look down the road and could see the power of the internet and what was going to happen. And me and a bunch of friends and him, we sat around in his office and we talked about the launch of Amazon.com. There was this store at the internet that only sold books. And those of you who are maybe a little bit younger don't know that, but Amazon only sold books for its first couple of years. It was an online bookstore, that's it. Now it sells everything. And we sat around talking about this. Oh my God, there's this store that's just gonna like sell books online and that's it. You can order it with your credit card and it's gonna be brought to you what does that mean what are the implications and you know there are some implications that oh my god we can't lose like the tactile sense of kind of going into community and being in bookstores and holding and touching our touching things like is that going to be a bad thing and then you know that could be a negative and then a positive would be you know we're going one day not too far from now and we said this very specifically and i remember this very well this was in 1995 one day, not too far from now, every single movie, every single album, every single book is going to be able to be purchased and downloaded and appear in your environment at the touch of a button. And, and I, you know, we all say that now because we all know that and we have iTunes and Netflix and everything, Amazon, all on our phones and it's so instantaneous we've taken it for granted, but I don't think we realize what a huge deal that is what a huge, massive, massive advancement in our species that is. And probably the most significant advancement, a portion of that is that it's egalitarian. I, don't know, I haven't been to China, but I've been to India a bunch of times. And I don't know if anybody's been to India, but everybody has cell phones in India. Everybody's, you know, downloading things onto their cell phone, and even poor people too. You go into the slums and everybody has a smartphone and everybody's kind of dimmed down like this. And it's this incredibly egalitarian revolution that we see happening and it's very, very interesting. Um, but what we are seeing, which is a really interesting kind of side effect of this that nobody knew was going to happen, and certainly Larry and Sergey at, 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 at Google didn't know that this was going to happen, but the, the way the web is structured now, it's structured to be personalized and everybody knows this. If you go to Google, and if you don't know this, it's called the filter bubble. And if anybody wants to take this exercise with a friend, it's a really interesting thing to do. Um, 
take a, a, you know, two friends, take your separate laptops, not the same laptop, take a separate laptop that you both use often, go to Google, search something. Israel, you know, yoga, whatever it is. Both of your search results will be entirely different. You know, because the machine basically it's personalized your experience. It wants you to see the information that is most relevant to you. There's usefulness in that for sure, but there's also an extreme polarization in this, and that nobody really knew what was coming. And it's called the filter bubble. And what it's done is because and you really see this on, on Facebook is really the biggest culprit. Facebook is only giving you the information that it thinks you are interested in, right? So it's creating. You know, far left liberals only want to see far left liberal shit. Far right neocon conservative Tea Party people only want to see Tea Party stuff. And there's no more moderates. There's no more meeting in the middle. There's no more seeing how the other half lives. So the algorithm is so powerful now that it's created this radical polarization. And you see it. And for something, you know, technology was supposed to be the, the fabric that was going to connect us all and give us all a voice to understand each other, which is partially true, but it's also done this thing where it's created, you know, we've seen the most extreme polarizing political climate that we've ever seen in our lives happening right now. And it's partially a result of that. Um, you know, I love, I'm a technologist and that's how I make my living and stuff and, 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 and it's great, but how do we disrupt the algorithm? You know, and disrupting the algorithm really affects our consciousness, you know? Um, like, I do this thing on Facebook, I like five Fox News stories all the time. I like to go and I, I, I look at Rush Limbaugh shit, Glenn Beck shit all the time. I, look, I comment on Ted Cruz's page and Michelle Bachman's page all the time because it disrupts the algorithm. And of my 3,000 friends on Facebook, there are bound to be a few that are conservative. They're somewhere, and now they're all popping up in my feed. And it's awesome to see it, to kind of see, oh my God, okay, this is what they're thinking. And I've sort of spent my last year on Facebook pretty much just getting in arguments. You know, for someone who thinks like I'm, I'm a yogi or something, I basically just yell at people on Facebook now. And it's something that's kind of like got to stop. It's probably not the most loving way to kind of interact with my brothers and sisters, but I do it all the time. It's fucking crazy people, what are you thinking? This doesn't make any sense. You know, and but it's because I've disrupted the algorithm, algorithm a little bit, and it's coming to me this different way of living is coming to me this different way of thinking. And you know, the only way this isn't a new thing. This goes back to the '60s. But the only way that we're going to progress in our culture, in in our society, is to understand each other more. You know? um, common in new age, and I use the word new age very liberally, it's not a bad word, don't be afraid of it, I'm a member of the new age community, and if you're here, so are you, and it's okay, but like a common thing with like the alternative slash new age community is to be very anti-news, you know, I hear this all the time, that, um, you know, I get to arguments with people all the time about, oh no, I don't want to take that in, just the energetic resonance on me is just, it's too much, you know, I don't want to be exposed to all of that negativity. Cool, that's good, and you do want to be sensitive about it and find the balance, there's no question about it, but I do think it's really important to check in now and then, because we have lost our privilege to be isolationists. We can't do that anymore. The world is too small now. 
you know, if you lived a hundred years ago in New York City, what was going on in Ethiopia was like, I'm told in Mars. It didn't matter. It seemed so far away. It would take three months to get there by boat. It's not the case anymore. We have to be really in interconnected. We have to know what our brothers and sisters are doing and where our struggles are. You know, and where are our opportunities? You know, it's really important to see where we can make the most impact and to where we can help. You know, Arab Spring is a really great example of that. You know, didn't quite get the, the outcome that everyone thought they wanted to get, but still, it was a really cool lesson in how you know isolationism no longer worked and how social media and technology can basically set a wild an idea like a wildfire. Really, really interesting. And you know that's the importance of, of, of news for me. You know, it's like just—it's basically just a way to check in. And you know, if you're finally tuned enough and smart enough and aware enough, you know, it's not like you're going to the news to believe what the news is telling you. It's just information. Just to know that this is going on in Israel, that this is going on in Iraq, or this is going on in China. It's not a way to stay. It's not all necessarily true, but it's a good way to basically inform yourself a little bit. You know. And, you know, for me, where that lies is it really kind of gives you the, it gives you the lens into your own soul once you kind of realize, like, my, who I, excuse me, who I think I am and, you know, the role in which I inhabit here um, is, you know, is, is my role and it's really, really important, but it is not reflective of my soul. So all of this information, all that I take in on a daily basis, it really helps me to understand who I am not. You know, I am not, you know, like, I'm, I mean, the most common thing is I am not my job, I'm not a digital marketer, I am not a person, just, you know, I, I don't consider myself a teacher even though we're talking to you here today. You know, I'm just like, if I lost all of these things, would I still be my soul and not my role? And, you know, it really, we really get into that discussion a lot, um, especially when people are trying to define who they are now. You know, um, you know, is, is your identity really wrapped in your um, in, in, in your profession? You know, in your artistry, which is a really cool thing. You know, um, like you know, you could say if someone were to define Bob Dylan, you could really say that you know he was an amazing singer who changed the world with his lyrics and his music, right? Of course. But I look at it as he was a soul who just managed to kind of tap into a little bit of the great spirit that was absolutely, you know, jaw-dropping. It really affected all of our lives. It's a really beautiful thing, and I think we all have that potential to do that. And so I guess that was kind of like the end of the technology spiel. It's just like, you know, technology to me is really the most kind of expressive manifestation of the science of God because it's a way for us to kind of we've created this web of, of a collective consciousness that's no longer about class either. You know, technology at the beginning was really a class trip, you know, and it's not about that anymore. Everybody has made the same. And so wrapping it up into, you know, into your soul and your exploration and your practical application of technology and your spiritual work, whatever you are doing, is a really, really important exercise to do. And, you know, there's one story uh, that I just want to end with. Um, 
1996, uh, as my, my dad was, was dying uh, of prostate cancer. And Ram Das was a close friend of ours. Ram Das came to visit us once. And uh, outside of my dad's window was uh, an isolation tank for all of us who don't know what that is. It's a, it's a flotation tank. You go in and you basically float in a saline solution. And it's completely soundless and dark. And you float. And it's kind of a, a hyper-induced meditative state that can produce you know, psychedelics. And I went to um, this, uh, this isolation tank, which was right outside of my dad's uh, kind of sliding glass door going out to the patio. And um, I went inside the isolation tank. And he was in a wheelchair at that point, kind of deteriorating quickly. And Rombus came to visit, and the two of them wanted uh, this was kind of like their last final catch up before he was going to check out the transition. And they were sitting out on the patio, him in his wheelchair, Rombus in a chair. Um, and it just happened to be about three feet away from this isolation tank that I was inside. And I took a little bit of ketamine, <laughs> drank one inside the isolation tank. And I was starting to get pretty out there, kind of get on a K-hole, and it was, it was getting pretty exciting, all the fireworks going on. And I couldn't take it anymore. I just absolutely had enough, and I just had this moment of self-awareness. Oh, get out of the tank, you know, quick, let's end this. So I popped open the hatch. and three feet away from me, like as close, closer than what you guys are to me, was, uh, was Rambos and my dad sitting there. And they didn't know I was inside of the isolation tank. I didn't know I was outside of it, that they were outside. And I'm just open up the hatch in this complete sweat and this panic and I'm looking at the two of them. And you know, I'm not gonna lie, this is an ego, but I had enough self-awareness to, to know Oh my God, I'm tripping, and I just had a crazy trip, and I'm looking at Rumbos and Timothy Leary, and this is really cool. Wow, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna say? And I'm staring at them, and I didn't know what to say, and Rumbos just leans into me, like six inches away from my face, and just goes, who are you now? <laughs> and that's it, that's been my guiding piece of advice for the last almost 20 years now. 19 years, you know, almost 20 years. That mantra has been, yeah. That's, you know, you could figure that out for yourself. Who are you now? Whatever that means to you. But that's been the clearest instruction that any spiritual teacher has ever given me. So, thanks for listening. Um, yeah, thank you. Well, everyone, that concludes this week's episode. If you have enjoyed this positive download, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on iTunes, since iTunes is the holy grail of all things podcasting. Uh, your good reviews help us to reach more listeners. Also, we would be extremely appreciative if you would tell your friends and family about the show. Our sincere intent with the Positive Head podcast is to spread positivity to the world because, well, because we're selfish, quite honestly. Uh, I say that jokingly, but really only halfway joking. I'm referring to the good kind of selfish based on the knowing that we all get what we give in this life because when we give, we're actually always giving to extensions of self since we're all really one in the same consciousness, just in different bodies. So if you want to be a good selfish along with us by helping to spread the positivity, by all means, please proceed to shout about the Positive Head podcast from your rooftop. <laughs> Otherwise, 
As you continue on your fabulous journey in this 3D reality, be sure to remember this. As long as you ain't dead, you're already positive ahead. Journey well, everyone, and thank you for being.